I think I'm supposed to say something about the Razorbacks, right? Like if there's, if there's like anything remotely resembling a weekly tradition that we have at Grace Church, lamenting our reality as Razorback fans is that thing. Hey. <laughs> that is a fair point. What's that all about anyway? Why do people keep watching? We love our hogs. Not just like in a bad season, you know, like I'm just, I'm done, you know, but like even during a bad game, you know, when you're down 51 to 10, why do you keep watching? Like what is in that for you other than hurt? I mean, it's like masochistic almost. My husband makes me. That's funny. But I think that reason is hope, right? Even when you know there's no chance of winning, even when you know there's no chance of winning maybe for the next three or four years, you still tune in. Because true fans suffer, right? True fans suffer through the tough times and rejoice in the good times. You have to endure the hard times to earn the privilege of celebrating in the good times, right? Because otherwise, you're just a fair-weather fan, right? Being a hog fan is almost like a spiritual discipline, isn't it? Yeah. And you hog fans are probably in a league of your own on the holiness scale because of it. Seriously. So, are any of you familiar with the game Minecraft? Minecraft. We've got like three of you. Cool. This will work great too. Uh, maybe your children play. Yes. Oh yeah. More, more head nods. Great. So what's the first step your first day when you start a new game of Minecraft? Anybody? Well, more specifically, you have to go punch a tree. Punch a tree. Because you don't have tools. You just have you and whatever clothing you're wearing. And uh, yeah, you got to go punch a tree, and it takes like six punches to break a block of wood, and, and you keep doing that through a couple of trees until you've gathered up enough blocks of wood to do some things. And that specific first task after you punch trees is that you need to build a crafting table. Why do you need a crafting table? Well, you need a crafting table to craft tools. The game is called Minecraft, after all, right? You need a crafting table to craft tools. And you need tools to defend yourself and build a house, right? Why is it so important, day one, to build a house in Minecraft? You're like, what is going on? Well, because night is coming, right? Night is coming in Minecraft. And that's a scary place to be in the world of Minecraft out in the open, right? Because you've got like these creeper things that will walk up behind you and you don't even know they're there and they just explode and kill you. And you've got like uh, zombies that are uh, coming at you. Among other things, spiders. Oh, skeletons that shoot arrows. You're like, where did that come from? But night's a scary place to be. 
out in the open. Monsters, they lurk in that darkness. And if you fail to get those tasks done, get that house built, you're in for a long night, right? Because the alternative to you not having a way to defend yourself or a home around you is that you dig a hole three squares down and put a plop of dirt above your head and just wait for the day to come. Or you just run around frantically, one or the other. Yeah, but the next day, after you've successfully constructed your home, the next day you venture out. You leave home to go find resources. Resources to make more things, right? There's lots of stuff you can build in Minecraft. If you've never played it, try it. It's boring, but you can't stop. It's weird. Uh, but you always come back home. You venture out further and further, and you always come back home. Because home is safe, right? It's where you know you can go and put your guard down, yeah? And not be afraid. It's the safety of that home that allows you to wander further and further out, exploring deeper reaches and mines and all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, you could just build your house and sit there, but that would be really boring, and you wouldn't discover anything, and you wouldn't create anything new, and that's kind of the point of the game, right? So why am I talking about Minecraft in a series based entirely on song lyrics? I don't really relate to music the same way most people do. I mean, obviously, I didn't catch that this song was about death. I hardly ever listen to music, actually. Almost never. I live a fairly musicless life. I mostly think in video game analogies, uh, random trivia, obscure movie quotes, and interesting things I can do with numbers. That's me in a nutshell. You know, useful stuff. But music, not so much. So this series is way outside of my comfort zone. I, I rarely listen to music at all. Uh, when I do, the music almost certainly doesn't have lyrics. I often find lyrical music to be very distracting. Uh, for me, music is mostly about function. Yeah? Uh, it's hard for me to enjoy music for the sake of music, right? Uh, for its own sake especially when it is really poetic, like Mumford and Sons songs. You know, it's less for me, what does it mean, and more, what does it do, right? How does it make me feel? And this particular song didn't make me feel sad. It made me feel quite happy. <laughs> as weird as that sounds now. Uh, but likewise, with most poetry, I've just never really got it, right? have never connected to it. Most Christians love the Psalms, for example. I've never had a strong connection to the Psalms, save a few verses here and there. I just don't get it. It doesn't resonate with me. And that's okay. And as for lyric interpretation, I am such a stickler for authorial intent. Like, what I mean by that is, what did the author want to say? Like, I don't care what you think that song meant. I don't even care what I think that song meant. I want to know what Mumford meant. 
What were you thinking about when you wrote that song? And I couldn't find anything about it on the internet because apparently they're artists and they like to keep everything all subjective and stuff. And I'm just like, no. Uh, I, I may be too literal of a thinker to really enjoy lyrical music and poetry for its own sake. And, and it's not, again, that I never enjoy it. There, there have been a handful of songs that have really resonated with me over the years, but it's just abnormal for that to happen. Uh, so anyway, most of the music I listen to is classically composed progressive metal. Uh, I put it on when I need to focus and get things done in the gym on a website on this sermon. Uh, I wasn't listening to Mumford when I wrote this. I was listening to a band called Mestis. Uh, yeah. You probably never heard of them. It's cool. You probably won't bother going to look them up either, but it's pretty neat stuff. Intervals, Mestis, Animals as Leaders, stuff like that. Just a bunch of like shred guitar and bass, drums. No words. No words. Nothing to get confused about. So, as you might guess at this point, when I was tasked with sermonizing a lyric from a Mumford and Sons song, I was like, uh, hmm, hmm. Which one? Pick one. Hmm. So I got to work listening to the entire catalog of their music, and I first discovered Mumford and Sons, probably with most of the rest of you, in around 2012, when I heard the song Babel. Are you familiar? It's one of the songs that wasn't covered in this series that's honestly surprised me. I really thought Pastor Devin would have covered it. Uh, but I heard it, and it did something to me. It had a function, right? Not so much the content of the lyrics, I didn't really care about that, but the way the music made me feel. And I'm not a feeler right? But it, it did something to me. There was so much passion, almost anger in the music, in the, in the singing, in the strumming of the guitars and banjos. I remarked to Pastor Devin one day, this is what worship sounds like to me. What That song. This is what worship sounds like to me. Like what I feel like it should sound like, right? Why doesn't it? <laughs> I wanted to find a way to make that song work for a sermon, but it, it just wasn't clicking for me. Uh, and I'll have to admit, as I've said already, that I have no idea what this particular song that Colby and Jenny performed for us is about. Uh, after the storm. I couldn't find anything from about it online. Uh, and so please don't take what I say here today as anything like song interpretation, because it's definitely not. It's just beautiful truth in an unexpected place. It's amazing the truth and beauty that you can find when you go looking for it. But you have to look for it. But there's a line in this song that grabbed a hold of me as I traversed the Mumford discography. But there will come a time, you'll see, with no more tears 
And love will not break your heart, but dismiss your fears. Get over your hill and see what you find there. I mean, that's like straight out of the Bible, right? I think. And it's this line that I want to riff on today. We live in this time in which loving is inherently risky, right? Whatever you love, whoever you love, whether through individual actions or loss, choosing to love someone or something will, will result in heartbreak. It is unavoidable. If you choose to love, your heart will be broken at some point. It's not even a risk. It's guaranteed. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this experience is one of the ways that, that you can know that you're doing it right. Not just loving, but being. Experiencing heartbreak. Likely multiple times. But someday, after the storm of this life, I believe, I hope, that that will no longer be the case. This line in this song screams hope to me, which is why it sounds so happy. And hope is an interesting thing to me. We hope for lots of things in life, don't we? We hope we get a house built before nightfall in Minecraft. We hope the Razorbacks win. We hope this sermon isn't boring. We hope for better times than these. We hope God will bring about his promises. There will be no more tears. Why? Why do we hope? Because these are things that we perceive to be good, right? Things that we perceive to be good. We hope for goodness. We hope for goodness. Now, sometimes our, our hoper, that's the technical term, gets a little out of whack. And what we hope for isn't actually a good thing. But we are, nevertheless, hoping for something we believe to be good. That's why we hope for it. We desire goodness. And this sort of hoping tells you something about human nature, if you'll allow it to. We humans, barring some illnesses, desire goodness. We desire goodness. Genesis says that God created us and said that it was good. It's part of who and what we are. To be good and to seek good. It's part of what it means to be created in God's image, like all of you. It's like we have this built-in homing device, our hoper, that steers us toward our perception of goodness. I believe, and I think most of you would agree with me, at least mentally, that we find ultimate goodness in God, and that our hoper is actually searching for Him. Yeah? 
Because God is good. Yes? God is good. But what does that really mean? God is good. In my experience, when I see people make reference to God's goodness, it is usually in the form of, at least here in the South, y'all, God is so good. Yeah? Followed by a story in which uh, someone perceives some sort of blessing in their life. Right? I mean, it's on Facebook every day. <laughs> and again, if that's you, that's cool. I think that's great. Praise God for your blessings, your perceived blessings or whatever, right? But the connotation here often implies an understanding of God's goodness that is circumstantial. Circumstantial. That is, God is good because he did this good thing for me. Does it make sense? God is good because he does good things. That's what it implies. <laughs> Sounds nice, but I want to tell you something. That isn't what makes God good. God isn't good because of your circumstances. It's not the quality of your here and now that should shape your view of God's goodness. It's not your sickness nor your health that are the measure of God's goodness. Nor is God's goodness measured in totologies like God is good because God is God. What? It tells me nothing. Instead, God's goodness is found in the essence of his being. He is good in the quality of his overcoming, in the depth of his love, and in the reality of the kingdom come. God is good. It doesn't need to be qualified. It doesn't need to be compared to anything. God is good. Of this, we must be sure. For it makes everything else we believe possible. More on that later. Why does this distinction matter? God is good because he does good things versus God is good because God is good. <laughs> yeah? In my theology class, uh, we have a couple of times a year. The first session is all about why it's important to do theology well. We do theology anytime we talk about God. Even anytime we think about God or believe about God, we're doing theology. And when we do theology poorly, it doesn't usually go well for us or for other people. I'll usually wear a shirt in that first class that says, bad theology kills people. And it's always interesting to hear what people think that statement means. But to do theology badly, to put a fine point on it, is to have a distorted view of God and by extension, what God wants from us. Take, for example, Adam and Eve in the garden. 
The way the serpent deceived Eve and continues to deceive all of us today was by convincing her that God was not altogether good. She called, the serpent called God's goodness into question. The serpent convinced Eve that God did not have her and Adam's best interest at heart. When God forbade them from eating from this mysterious tree in the middle of the garden, right? The serpent even convinced Eve that God's motive for this seemingly random rule was so that he wouldn't have any competition with them, so that Adam and Eve would not become like God themselves, is the phrase used by the serpent. They have believed a lie about God. And with their false picture of God, they rebelled against the beautiful plan that God had for them and the rest of humanity. Are you seeing this? The first human sin in the Bible came about because of a distorted view of what? God's goodness. That's why this distinction matters. That's bad theology. God is good. Period. And we, I believe, want to believe this almost instinctively, right? Again, because we desire goodness. And yet, we will entertain ideas about God, in my opinion, do not really paint him in the best light. There is a widely held belief, for example, and we, we pick on this all the time, so apologies to those of you on the internet, that God predestines some people to hell without regard to any truly free choices they make. That's a, that's a belief among a lot of Christians, roughly a third of them. This idea to me undermines the goodness of God. It undermines a belief in the goodness of God anyway. I, I can't conceive of a similar human behavior that, would we, that we would label as good. Because the very concept of good, to me, would necessarily rule out such behavior. Yeah? It would be like a judge sending someone to prison simply because they wanted to, not because of anything the person did. Some might say to me, but who are you to question God, Zach? Well, that's a different lesson for a different day, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not questioning God. I'm questioning the thing that you think you believe about God because it doesn't align with what I instinctively understand goodness to be. There's a difference. For example, if you get to heaven and find out that your friend is in hell because that's simply what God chose for them before the foundations of the world, he predestined them, how does that make you feel? Huh? Slided. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Honestly, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can comment. It's okay to say, yeah, it doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound good at all to me. 
Well, God is good, so it must have been good in his eyes. His ways are higher than our ways, right? No, that's trite. That's not an answer. In what other circumstance would you accept that as a reasonable response? What if it wasn't your friend? What if it was your child? How do you feel then? Because God just predestined them to be there. Would you be able to worship their God in heaven? I mean, you would bow down for sure, but not because of worship, but because you're terrified. And I understand that it's likely that none of you here today hold this view, which is why I can pick on it. There are others we can pick on too. Uh, but it makes the point well. It's okay to ask yourself, does what I believe about God really seem good to me? Or do I just accept it because I think I'm supposed to? People, and we Christians especially, are very good at thinking we believe what we think we're supposed to believe. And we dare not question these things because that might mean we find a different answer. And finding different answers might mean we have doubts. And we can't have doubts because that might mean we're on the path to losing our faith or that maybe we've already lost it. And that scares us. Because then what? Answers make us feel safe. Yeah? There's comfort there. It gives us a home base, like in Minecraft. Questions and uncertainty scare us. And feeling safe is good for a time. It is, after all, our first core value here at Grace Church. But what if those questions, those doubts, those uncertainties, what if they weren't signaling the end of your faith journey, but rather indicated you were just getting started? That can be a scary thought too. I've been in this for 20 years. How could I just be getting started? What if they were the path to something even better? A better understanding of yourself, of each other, of the world, and of God. We Christians have this very strange idea of what it means to grow in our faith. As though it meant to become more certain of a few ideas. You can't become more certain of things. Either you are certain or you are not. That's not growth. The problem with safety is that it is not a place of growth. You cannot stay safe and expect to grow. At some point, you have to be honest. And honesty will always bring questions. You guys know I love heavy squats, right? I'm not sure I'll ever give a sermon without a squat illustration. So here you go. When I first started strength training, I began with an empty barbell on my back. 45 pounds. It's light. 
It's the same thing I do with every client that shows up in my garage. The reason is because 45 pounds is safe. You aren't likely going to hurt yourself with an empty barbell, and certainly not if you've got a good coach's eye on you. It's easy to focus on your form and your technique at these light weights. Miss Paula over there comes to see me three times per week. She's strong, y'all. She deadlifted 200 pounds, was it? 195, my bad. Right. If I had thrown 225 on the bar and said, all right, let's get to work, first day, do you think she'd have felt safe? No, of course not. She'd have ran away. You're crazy, dude, right? Anyway, we start out very light, and we add weight slowly over time, getting stronger, building confidence. I failed a squat once. One time. I've never done it again. It was 255 pounds for a set of five. I think I got three or four of them and just crashed. It was humiliating. But now, that same weight, 255 pounds, is trivial to me. I did 255 for five sets of five for a light squat day yesterday morning. On my heavy days, 255 is just an easy warm-up set on the way to 440. If I had tried to start at 400 pounds, I'd have probably died. My body and my mind were not ready for that. That stress. But it was only through pushing beyond the limits of my comfort zone, of my sense of safety, that I was ever able to achieve what I have achieved in a squat rack. Every pound we add to the bar gives us a bigger home base to take it back to Minecraft. A larger number with which we feel safe. I feel quite safe all the way up to about 395. It's not a big deal, right? Go a little bit more than that and like, <sighs> but again, you have to start somewhere, somewhere small. The most basic of things, like an empty barbell. And for us here, I would like to suggest that our home base, our empty barbell, our most basic of things is that God is good. God is good. That there will come a time with no more tears in which love will not break your heart but dismiss your fears. We must believe that. If we do not, if you do not, why? What is in the way of you believing that God is good? Is it, perhaps, like with Adam and Eve, some idea about God that you just can't reconcile with your perception of goodness, maybe? If that bothers you, ask those questions. God will not love you any less for it. He is good after all. 
Do you think less of your children when they ask you questions? I hope not. I'll tell you a secret. Years and years ago, I asked Pastor Devin, and this was in the time before he was lead Pastor Devin, uh, how do you know when someone is growing spiritually? You know what he says? When they start asking questions. (laughs) It is our hope in the goodness of God in light of what Jesus has done for us that provides us with a safe home base. But it is the exploration of things on the fringes of our comfort zone that causes us to grow. Like adding weight to the bar. Like venturing further from home in Minecraft. Like asking genuine, hard questions. If you're not ready to ask those questions, that's okay. You're allowed to stay in a safe space. But it's in this exploration something remarkable happens. Our comfort zone expands. Weights or questions that were once terrifying can seem trivial. We can grow. Uh, I'm going to invite the usher team to come on up. Questions mean that you have ventured beyond home base and you've bumped up against something unfamiliar. And here's the thing. A bigger home base just means more questions. It doesn't stop. And more questions means more opportunities for you to grow. Embrace that. Embrace those questions. Wrestle with those questions. Allow your hope in the goodness of God to take you where it will. Because God is good. Amen? God is good. Can you say it with me? God is good. For our communion time today, I want to meditate on a bit of scripture rather than doing our traditional thing here. A verse from a psalm, believe it or not. It's a verse about God's goodness and finding our home base in that reality. So uh, you'll be free to come up and take the elements and partake in whatever fashion you like. Uh, You're welcome to return to your seat uh, for as long as you want and meditate on the scripture. uh, Or you can be on your way. That's fine too. Uh, But afterward, the prayer team will be up front if you would like prayer for anything at all. Yeah. So here's the scripture. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In the Zach Allen paraphrase, know that God is good and make that your home base. Y'all pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Help us come to a fresh understanding of what that even means. And Lord, I ask that you are with us as we explore the fringes of our comfort zones and grow all the more in our understanding of you 
and your goodness. 